Welcome to Business Drivers, the podcast dedicated to helping you be a more effective digital leader. Each episode, we connect you to leaders and ideas that unlock new growth, both professional and personal. Business Drivers is presented by Farron, and I'm your host, Jim Keen. Our guest for this podcast is Jen Swanson. I think Jen might be the best network tech leader in the Twin Cities, and I feel very, very fortunate that I get to work closely with her on some of our best engagements at Farron. Jen's got a great track record as a product leader at organizations like Optum, Children's Hospital, Capella, and others. As you'll hear, she started as an educator, and as it turns out, most of her work today is still in education. It's just in a different setting. I really appreciated all the practical, useful wisdom here about the transition to digital product teams and how to make that transition happen. I also appreciated Jen's comments about the role emotional intelligence plays and how it's required to stay resilient in the face of continuous change. She's got me doing more research on emotional intelligence. And I'm also stealing her phrase, the frozen middle. Listen for that. You can find Jen at jenswanson.net and on Twitter at jgswanson. Check out the show notes for more info. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you like this convo with Jen. So Jen, you've got a great reputation around town as being an expert on hard transformations inside of IT organizations where they're moving towards a product model. It's kind of a specialized work that requires mm-hmm. a lot of experience and a lot of skill set. Is this the kind of work you thought you were going to be doing when you left college? Oh, God, no. No, what not was at the, all. What was the original plan? Uh, the original plan was to extend my adolescence as long as possible. How's that working? Um uh, well, I mean, it was good for a while. So I, I actually started my career in higher ed administration and worked on college campuses. My first job, well, I went right into grad school because I was like, school's working out for me. I'm going to just keep going. Yeah. So I, I did the six-year program, four years of undergrad, two years of graduate work. And then I, 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 but my first job out of graduate school was working at Hamlin University. I was a live-in hall director and I helped plan campus activities. So like bands, coffee houses. Remember coffee houses back in the day where like some dude in a man bun with an acoustic guitar would play in a dark cafeteria and everyone thought they were real cool. That was what I did for my first job out of grad school. And then also lived in a dorm with 220 undergraduates. And that is like a whole other podcast that we'll have to do sometime because we're not going to get into that now, but that's where I started. That'll be part two. That'll be part two. Right. So that's where I started. And I, you know, I worked in higher ed for a long time and I was always the youngest person in the office because, you know, higher ed is full of lots of people who take that job at 18 or 22 and then stay there until 65, or at least the time when I was coming out. Now it's not less so now, but it was a very staid kind of thing. And so I worked for, you know, a couple of the local colleges and I was the one that was like, you know, we should really be emailing our alumni and people were like, that is just shocking, shocking to me. So if there was a technology project to be done, everyone would look at me and be like, you know, kind of like, Hey, Mikey, (laughs) give it to Mikey. Yeah. Yeah, It was give it to Jen. She'll figure it out. And so, um, yeah, like we did the first email marketing to alumni at the Carlson school of management. That was something I started back in the late 1990s, I guess. Yeah. Well, and then I kind of went, you know, I kind of found my way through, but technology was always the underpinning. So I was always the one who could translate, right? Like I could sit between somebody who understood technology and someone who didn't understand technology. And I could explain 
what the other side was saying. And while I don't believe that that is a, there's still some of that in what I do now, it was very much a novel skill set when I was coming up. And it, I've just sort of, <laughs> I've just sort of, I, I hitched my, my wagon to that star and just sort of wrote it. So. Well, I'd make the argument that that, that skill as a translator is probably more valuable now than ever. Sure. And, and I would also guess, well, let's just flash forward a little bit. Um, yeah. Talk about the work you're doing now and mm-hmm. how your skills as a translator explainer are coming in valuable. I do have to say that when I left higher ed, there was a part of me that regretted all of the time I spent my master's is also my master's is in education. And so I have like counseling and adult learning, uh, adult development theory courses and research and things like that, that I did. And when I left higher ed, I thought, oh, what a waste, man, two years of my life. I'm never getting back. And the amount of time, uh, the, the number of times a week that I think back and to that those learnings and that research and, you know, the work of my master's program and apply it. And what I'm doing now is shocking to me because it's all about how, how do people learn new skills? How do people change how they work? Right. How do they um, show up in new and different ways? How do we deal with vulnerability? Right. I'm a big Brene Brown fan. And so we talk, I talk with my clients a lot about vulnerability and shame, right? Because if you're going to transform an organization, everybody at every level of the organization is going to have to show up with some vulnerability at some point. And so it's very interesting to me to see both how far I've come in my job and really, really how close it is to where I started out. So, so what I'm doing now really is working with leaders defined in lots of different ways, but leaders inside of organizations that are that are facing down the realities of digital transformation. They maybe have come at it a couple of times and maybe in some, you know, peripheral ways, but they're, they're coming to terms with the fact that they're going to have to strip down to bare walls and build it back up again. And it's a heavy lift. It's a terrifying prospect for people who have built their career according to one sort of way of working, um, which a lot of times is through command and control. Yeah. Right. And that's just not the phrase about um, what got you here is not what's going to get you to the next level comes up all the time. Right. And so when we, when we dig into that, it is all about how are you going to, you know, how are you going to deal with change? What are the emotional ramifications of this for you, for your teams, for the entire organization, you know, for the culture at large, that's like big, heavy stuff. If I could, share just a quick anecdote, both positive and negative. I, I, I've had a, an experience related to this over the last year where I had a leader who was very high up in an org essentially say mm-hmm. to me, like, I spent my entire career grinding my way to get to this mm-hmm. thing. And now you're telling me everything is changing. That's essentially yeah. <laughs> what this leader said. But on the flip side, I'm also working with the CMO right now who is really excited about the future. And her comment is like, I feel like I have been working my entire career to be able to take advantage of all these things that are in front of us. So let's just change what we have to change to go at it. And that is just such a refreshing, you know, she's fearless. She's super strong. um, But that's such a refreshing attitude. And it, 
Yeah. It, it, it's just pretty rare. It is. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the way that, you know, that translator role, in some ways, you're right. It still is very, very valid. What I think is really interesting about the way that uh, business has evolved in the last 20 years, right? So if I, if I think back probably 10 or 15 years ago, we were starting to see a lot of trends about how much IT spend was going to come out of marketing. And it was, you know, big numbers with a lot of zeros. Yeah. And that was like, just totally mind blowing to everyone. Right. And so that for me was the moment that was the Rubicon that we crossed where IT and business could no longer be two separate things. Right. So I fight all the time of like, functionally, I understand that we have to talk about IT and the business, but it's all the business. It's all digital. (laughs) It's all technology and it's all business. There is no wall that you throw stuff over. Right. And, and so when that marketing spend hit that huge shocking number, and all of a sudden you started to see CMOs coming up through the ranks that had far more technological agility and, and sort of comfort. And frankly, technology leaders that came up through the business, right? Like it, it has totally changed things in terms of top level leadership, but not everywhere and not all at once. So that curve, you know, if you think about that as like a big crashing wave that was, you know, cresting 10, 15 years ago, like we're still feeling it up on the shore in some industries um, and in some companies that, you know, are more, I mean, I kind of like to think of myself as the champion of the unsexy industries, right? So of course the app, you know, the consumer facing app and retail all were at the front end of that. And, yeah. you know, some are still catching up, but they led the charge. When you have healthcare, you have education, you have financial services, um, legacy financial services, man, that they're, they're going kicking and screaming. All, all of those regulated industries are really hard and maybe not kicking and screaming. I mean, I think there's plenty of leaders that are showing up going, come on, we have got to make this transition. And that's really where the transformation comes from, right? Is leaders showing up saying, we can't pretend anymore that we can half-ass this, you know, can I swear on this podcast? Is that okay? Hell yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. So so, um, without naming any names, or yes. providing any identifying information. Let's just sure. both agree that the financial services space is in the healthcare and the education spaces yeah. have been in one way or the other talking about transformation for, let's just say, for 20 years. <laughs> yes. And if I could, if I could share a point of view, a lot has changed on the consumer experience side but the real deep changes probably haven't happened inside of the cultures and inside of the orgs. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a fair assumption? It's been a couple of years since I've been deep inside a financial services firm, but is that fair? Yeah. But you have to remember too, you're talking to a Pollyanna. So it's hard. I, I see possibility everywhere. So it's hard for me to, to sometimes lend a critical eye because I want to be the, the yay, you know, yeah. cheering them along for every little step. So yes, I think, you know, certainly exceptions are true, but having worked in all three, right. I I've got the hat trick education, healthcare, and financial services yeah. is Where I think, so education, I think has gone faster and certainly the pandemic just sort of squashed any, any sort of pretense that 
education wasn't digital to start with. Right. And so, you know, you've got this like global event that has really put a lot of the um, pearl clutching (laughs) aside, right. Because it was a existential threat, right? Like there was, we could pearl clutch or we could cease to exist, but there's not many other options. I don't know that healthcare and financial services have had that same sort of cataclysmic event and let's hope that they don't. Um, But that being said, I do think that the leaders in highly regulated environments, especially for companies who are all about decreasing risk. So let's just say insurance, for example, right? Um, uh, Banking, the conservative parts of financial services and the, you know, and frankly, the, the parts of healthcare that are serving large federal, you know, federally funded populations. I mean, their hands are tied in some ways, right? Because they've got so much, so much pressure from that regulatory environment. What I see in terms of, you know, where Pollyanna Jen shows up is the possibilities even within that to work differently, to deliver value quicker, even in a highly regulated environment. I see the possibilities everywhere. Now, that's change. Change feels risky. And until somebody's, it's, you know, everyone wants to see it prove, proven out. I get that that works over there, Jen, but it's never going to work here. All it takes is one team. Yeah. to start to do it. And then another team and then another team. And so those kinds of gradual starts can be really powerful. The problem is, is then they kind of tend to stall out when you start in that organic way, because you're going to get to like an 80, 20 rule. And then there's always going to be people who are like, I'm not going to change. I'm not, I'm not in it. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> don't move my cheese. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. You're, you're in a unique spot given the work that you do as a senior advisor to senior leaders. And Mm -hmm. in some ways you could be considered a CIO or a CTO whisperer, you know, because you've got, you've got their ear, you're, you know, you're, you're their confidant in a lot of ways. What are some of the hard conversations that you have to have with these folks as they're trying to lead a transformation to a product model inside of their org? What's really interesting to me in that, Jim, is that I have been blessed to work with a couple of really high emotional intelligence technology leaders in the last few years who are the ones that are asking me in. Okay. Because what they see is this entrenched, you know, command and control model. And they know that they can do better, yeah. but they're not necessarily equipped to have the conversations. You know, they can get their, their C-suite on board because they can, they can look at, you know, look across industries at companies that have done the work, right. They've got the receipts and they're more nimble and they're more profitable and they're capitalizing on market opportunities in a way that their company just goes, God, how did we miss that? How can, why, why are they doing that? Why can't we have that? Right. And, and, and these folks show up and they get that, that executive buy-in and maybe they've got pockets of, well, chances are in most cases, what they have is a frustrated delivery class, right? Like, so the, the doers in the organization, the people who do the work are frustrated because it takes six months to get 
budget approval to like <laughs> yeah. change the color of your pens, right? Like, I mean, it's just like, it's so overburdensome. And so, but what is, what, ha- what happens? And it's um, McKinsey's turn termed at the frozen middle, right? Like the, the senior director, VP level, director level who have come up through their career in a command and control stage gate, sorry, but a very waterfall way of getting stuff done. We tell you what we want at the end. You go off and build it. Don't ask questions. Don't get sassy with me about what, what does the user want? I'm the business. I'm going to tell you what I want and you go do it. And the problem is, is that you get executive teams going, how hard can it be? Let's just change. And then you got people down below going, if we don't make a change, I'm going to quit. And then you got the people in the middle who you actually need to make the change that frozen middle, just, just entrenched. And they just like, you know, there's some that are ready to make the change, but, but that's where, if we go back to the counseling stuff that I said, I bring in is dealing with that sort of middle level of, I don't know how to be or show up any differently than I already have. I'm probably 20 or 30 years into my career. And I, you know, I've had success one way and you can't make me change to another. Um, and oh, by the way, my comp and my success, my financial, personal financial success is all tied to this old way of doing it. And, and now you're telling me I'm going to, I'm going to push control down to my teams. I don't know if I trust them Yeah. to do this. Right. And how am I going to know, you know, if they're, if I'm not telling them what to do, how am I going to know if yep, it's yep, being yep. done, if it's being done right, if it's being done the way that I want it, which by the way, is really what the problem is. Right. Uh, isn't that always the problem? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, so when I get asked in, that is the question almost always, even if it's not the words, that's the essence is there is, there is an opening for it. I have a willing, um, I I think there's a willingness and an energy in our teams to experiment and to, to change how we're doing things because people are frustrated, but there is this brick wall in the middle and I don't know how to scale it. Come help me scale it. And so those are the conversations that we get in and I say, well, what is the, what is the fear of change, right? Is it, we're moving so fast that we can't possibly shift. Where can we carve out some safe spaces for that iterative sort of experimentation kind of model? You know, there's lots of different layers of the conversation, but I would say 90% of the times that's what I'm getting asked. I think we could do a whole separate conversation on breaking apart the fear of change and what's, <laughs> what's the fear stack. Yeah. You know? um, oh my God. I'm going to totally use that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's everything from psychological to losing your skills down to just like primal fear, but we'll, we'll come, we'll come back to that. So yeah. Um, as, as you were going through some of that, it, it, I was starting to think of this frozen middle and that's a term that I hadn't heard, but it makes total sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, imagine a director of dev or it, let's just think, you know, software development, enterprise software development, mm-hmm. director level person. She's probably been in, in the workforce for 20 years. Think of the changes that she's been through already, mm-hmm. probably a move to object oriented programming, probably a move to the cloud, probably offshore, probably working um, in distributed teams. The tool set yes. is all changed, trying to move to an agile model, capability, maturity, management, um, uh, 
lean, uh, you know, all of the, all of the things. And so now right. this, now this move to a product centric model is the latest. Yep. So it's a lot. It is a lot. And I think what's different and, you know, this is not about it leaders. It's not about business leaders. There's a fundamental human sort of personality change or personality difference yeah. um, that I, I come back to time and time again, and it is the fixed or growth mindset, right? So if you are that director and you've got a growth mindset, you're coming at that saying, I've been through a lot. I've seen, I've seen, seen some stuff. I've got the t-shirts, right? Um, and every time we did it, it was hard, but we got something out of it, right? They saw that there was an investment um, in the change and that then there was something that came out of it. Sometimes it was a big improvement. Sometimes some of that stuff failed, I'm sure, along the line. But overall, the, the arc of progress has been positive when we think about that 20 years in that IT director's life, right? Yeah. So you can have a, you can have a growth mindset about it and to say, okay, not a wholesale, yeah, let's go right? That's not what I'm looking for when I'm talking with this frozen middle. What I'm looking for is a curiosity. I'm looking for um, a willingness to say, I can learn something new, right? That's what that, where that growth mindset comes from. I can learn something new and I can be a part of determining what that new thing looks like inside the context of my company. And I think that's the other thing too, that is really big when, when I'm talking with leaders, executive leaders, the CTO, CIO, CEO, they're saying, we're smart enough to know that we can't just buy a book. We're not just going to like send everyone the latest Marty Kagan and call it a day. Like that's yeah. not how this works, right? That there is a contextualization, which is the hard part of transformation, which is we can look at best practices. We can look at what all the, you know, what the big five consulting firms are putting out there. And there's lots of good stuff. Well, what are we going to do? What does it look like here? And the smart leaders know that that effort of contextualization of best practices is that's the, that's the stuff. That's what I do every day is okay. We, there's lots of ways we could approach this problem. Let's look at a couple and let's figure out what our approach is going to be. Yeah. Now that it director has to show up with the willingness to, to be a part of that contextualization yeah. or they can be fixed, which is been there, done that. I don't want to do this again. I'm going to lay in the tall grass and hope that everyone just goes away. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and let's just acknowledge that, you know, there might be days when we all feel like that, but. Oh, yes, for sure. But, but on average, you, the ones that trend towards curiosity and a growth mindset are going to be more successful in a transformed organization. Yeah. Well, um, so I, we, we jumped right into sort of the nuances of leadership in a changing technology environment. And I think I, I made, I should have sort of set this up with a preliminary <laughs> question first. You know, one of the changes that I think you're leading most frequently is a move to a product centric model inside of organizations. In other words, a technology product model or a productized mm -hmm experience approach experience yes yeah uh, of so, so managing elements of the digital experience like you're managing a product um, mm -hmm. it's a relatively new approach so let's say over the last five years mm -hmm. five to ten years probably but really it's picking up mm -hmm. steam over the last five for folks that might not have had the joy of experiencing this change yet how would you describe that 
change, you know, the, how would you describe the strategic choice to move to a product centric model to somebody that isn't familiar with this? Like, why are we doing this and what's the, what's the upside? So, yeah, so that definition around product, I think is what is really hard. And I'm finding it most in, in the financial services industry, all my financial services uh, clients are the ones that really grapple with this idea of a product. My product is an annuity. My product is the 15 year fixed mortgage or the 15 year, you know, variable rate, you know, five, one arm, whatever. Those are my products. Yep. So where we go, where I usually start with them is that the revolutionary concept, right? The thing that is in Harvard Business Review and all the McKinsey and Gartner and everything else, right? Around digital transformation. The revolutionary idea is that you are probably very good at developing those products. How can we take a similar discipline around understanding the market, understanding our customers, understanding how our consumer expectations are being set, not just by our competitors, but by the the digital world at large and saying that we have to apply that same discipline of both design and delivery, problem space and solution space to the experiences, the ways that we service that product, the ways that we, that a customer interacts with that product, how do they buy it? How do they access the value that you're delivering to them? All of those things that are kind of like the, the, um, leaves on an onion, right? They're the, mm-hmm. the layers of an onion are all around the product. And if we don't manage them with the same sort of discipline and rigor that you develop the thing that you're selling, the thing that you're selling is not going to have as much value. And that yeah. is really where I start to get some aha moments, right? People understand, oh, we're going to manage the experiences like we manage the product. Now, The first thing they say is great. We have this excellent stage gate process that we can put you through. And I say, nope, not going to happen, right? Because we can deliver that value incrementally. We don't have to wait until all of the Avengers have been assembled to see the value, right? There There is value in Thor and Black Widow and... Black Panther and all of the other ones in and of themselves, right? I'm sorry, I have teenage boys. We spend a lot of time talking about yeah. the Avengers. Um, so, so I do think that looking at that all the way around is really important and is that's really the big eye-opener. Everybody wants speed to value, right? Why does it take so long? Well, we could do it faster, but it's going to require some changes in how we do things. So, so getting into like, how do you manage these digital product teams or how do you lead these digital product teams? Can you share a mm-hmm. story of when a product team you were working with either as a leader or as a coach kind of got it when it started clicking for them where they realized like, oh, okay, I understand really what we're trying to do now and why this is better. Yeah. So, um, so many, because I love what I do. I love that I get to work with teams. This is the whole, I mean, this is the whole enchilada, right? I think honestly for business teams, right. And again, I'm going to now violate the rule I said earlier about referring to business and it as separate organizations, cause it's all the business, but, <laughs> but for honestly, but for business teams, right. Who actually have the, 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 um, road scars from delivering actual products that are sold. Right. Yeah. What they will say is I, I, I had a frustration that, Everything took too long. 
that in a project model, I would have all these people who would swarm around this initiative and then they'd be lost to the winds. As soon as the project ended, they were off into other parts of the organization. And if there was a problem or a change or some sort of thing that we needed to do to meet a customer need, I couldn't get those people back. I had to like ramp it all up over again. And even just this week, working with a team who's in the definition stage, right? They have not put, they do not have one story in their backlog, okay? Just to nerd out, right? There's not, no one's coding anything. But when we, we're in the defined phase with them where we're taking their business and starting to break it down into value-based product groups, and we start to paint a picture for, okay, if we start thinking about the way that new clients enter into the ecosystem, yeah, right? And we optimize for that. Here's how you're going to see the benefit over here. Because we're in the, what is the product, right? What's the product group? What are the product families? And what are the outcomes we're trying to drive? And all of a sudden they see that instead of thinking about, you know, their investment portfolio clients who can't do X, Y, and Z, and that they've got to, you know, they're trying to journey map the whole experience and solve for all of it at once. They realize that if they can come at it through a certain, through an onboarding experience, for example, or a acquisition experience, they can start to see the rising tide that lifts all boats. Right. And there is a moment where they all look at, you know, whatever that slide is, where we start to say, this is going to be, you know, this is what we're hearing you say your product family will be. And these are the likely product teams. And these are the outcomes we could drive. There's kind of this moment and they're like, you can do that. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah. we're going to do that. It's not me. We are going to do that. Your people are going to do that, but we're going to assemble them as a different kind of team. Right. Yeah. And we're going to have dedicated resources and they're going to live and breathe this and they're going to consistently improve it over time. And you are going to start to see value in a quarter when they start to actually produce, you know, working software. Yeah. They're going to say, oh, I get it now. Right. Rather than we're in queue on, you know, project number 67 to get the guy we need to do the change to the onboarding experience. Right. Yep. 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 So now I, I'm, I'm jumping off my list of questions here because okay. it just made me realize something. So as you're coaching these orgs to move to a product centric model, mm-hmm. what is typically the model that you're unwinding? You know, if, if the destination is a product, a high performing product team, what is the mm-hmm. de- point of departure? Is it capability management? Is it project teams? Is it, you know, work stream leaders, like what is the point of departure that you're having to address? It is project. It's project-based work. Okay. It's December. Everyone's finding out what their initiatives are for next year. There's $50 million in new initiative funding. And if you're not on the list, then see you later. And then there's all of the and Jim, you worked corporate, so you know this. Remember when you would get the, um, the list of priorities or the the list of the strategy, the top three strategies, right? And yeah. you would look at, I did this. I'm going to totally own up to doing this. You would look at those strategies from the executive team. You know, we, we need to like drive revenue and decrease, you know, cost yeah. to serve or whatever it is. And then you'd look at the work that you wanted to do. Oh yeah. Right? yeah not I'm... that Maybe not that the customer wanted to do or that the business wanted you to do, but that Jim wanted to do. And you would look at it and be like, oh, I can totally make that work. I'm just going to like... I'll, I'll map this one here and this this one here. And then put your hand up and say, look, 
I've got some activities. <laughs> I've got some things that lie into this. Give me my money and you'd get it and you'd go off and go. That's the model that we're trying to unwind because they they're saying, look, we're going to, we need to launch, you know, in these markets, we need to launch these products. We need to do whatever. And by the way, all of those strategies are very business oriented. This is what we need to do. Let's yeah. not at all think about what the customer needs, right? How are we going to show up and serve the customer different? So the thing that has to be unwound is this idea that there is a fixed pool of money once a year. They, you know, it gets peanut butter spread around. Everybody goes out and does stuff. And that by some miracle, right? It's all going to come together and prove out the value that they, that they said they wanted in January, in January, when it comes around time in December, that is what we are having to unwind. And, and instead saying, uh-uh, we're not going to do that anymore. You got $50 million you want to put towards, towards growth and, and innovation. Get specific on what is that growth and innovation. Stand up teams around it, right? So we're talking about unwinding project-based funding, annual capital financing, right? Yep. No longer are we... You know, the, the, the conversation is there's always a moment with a finance person who says, oh, my God, are we going to be able to capitalize these teams? Because that's how their whole their whole enterprise is built yeah, is yeah. what's capital and what's what's O&M, right? Operation management. And you're coming in saying, no, I want to fund a team. I want to fund a team, you know, at a fixed run rate for the next two years. And we are going to crank out this value over a roadmap. And then we'll talk about whether or not we need to increase that run rate or decrease that run rate. Yeah. And that just breaks everything. I, I think I still have a couple spreadsheets from the 2000s from Ameriprise where, you know, you'd go through the portfolio of projects in, you know, there'd be the little check boxes. Is this a high, medium or low against this organizational <laughs> yes. priority? Yeah. <laughs> Put higher medium. I mean, like, you know, I'd go through and mark a couple mediums just to show I was like maybe one or two lows just to show I was like, you yeah. know, doing it right. <laughs> but yeah, I was yeah. like, yes, it all matches. Trust me, it all matches. <laughs> well, and then the dirty little secret is nobody would ever go back and look at whether those things actually delivered any sort of return or not. No, no. So good, good times. Good times. <laughs> Do you, do you have an example or can you share a story about a leader that isn't you um, who did a great job of communicating the what and why of the, this transition of, to, the, to the product model? Yes. I mean, I can um, without divulging any names or anything. Um, I'm actually one of my, I, I work with multiple clients at once. That's the way my portfolio comes together. But one of the clients I'm working with right now, I think it's been pretty honest about the difficulty, right? Yeah. So it's not all sunshine and flowers. Here's what's, here's what's hard about it. Here's what's good about it. When I've done this before, here's what I learned and what we're going to do differently this time, right? Like yeah. being, being vulnerable. See, I'm going to come right back around to, to good old Brene Brown, but showing some vulnerability about what you got wrong in, in past iterations of things is a very compelling story that draws people, uh, draws people to you. Right. And draws and says, okay, I'm willing, I'm willing to take that growth mindset and, and be on this journey with you. Because I tell people I have a advanced degree in metaphor. I really, as an English major, feel like it's my duty to really enrich conversations with really great metaphors, but it is a little bit, my job is a little bit like being 
a Sherpa, right? Getting people up the mountain, but there's no clear path. This is not like we're going to take the same path everybody else did, but we know we're going to, we're starting at base camp and we got to get to the, to the summit. And I think when executives come along and say, I'm willing to be the Sherpa with you, I'm going to walk it with you. I'm not going to stand on the peak and tell you how to get up here. We're going to start at base camp together and we're going to, we're going to walk it together. I think that's where you see the most success. Um, and again, there is that requires emotional intelligence. It requires vulnerability. It requires an openness to say the way I did it before is not necessarily how we're going to do it now, but there are lessons and, and sort of mileposts along the way that I know about. And I'm going to help, help you because I know that. Right. Yeah. Cause that EQ I think is, is super important in a change like this, where you are moving people's cheese, right? People's jobs are going to change their, how they're compensated, how they're rewarded for, you know, what is success? The whole definition of success changes in this model, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it really does make it clear if, if that's the kind of leadership that is successful based on your experience, it really does make clear why that growth mindset that I don't know, let's figure it out mindset right. is so critical. Yes. And what, what's, what's interesting is going back to this fear stack, this, I, you know, this idea of like, what are yeah. all the layers of fear? You know, I bet if you talk to somebody that has a fixed mindset yeah. and you, you said to her, Hey, would you rather be told what to do? Or would you rather figure it out? 90% of the time, anybody that's qualified is going to say, you know, what? I'd rather figure that out. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that sort of curiosity or that desire to figure it out on their own is kind of a key to mm -hmm. th that optimism of, I think I can figure it out. I'd rather figure it out is sort of the foundational piece of a growth mindset. Yep. And, and, and so, you know, maybe that's the, one second, of the, ways the other side of that coin though, Jim is, is ego management because I'd rather figure it out is the right first step where I also see both leaders and team members or that frozen middle, right. Go sideways is, but I already know it. So I don't need you. Yeah, right. Yeah, I already yeah, yeah. know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. Yeah. I think, I think that's Tell part the of Heisman, the, right. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's, you know, that might be something unique in a, in, in the dev world or it world, but I've seen it also on the, on the marketing and the, you know, product management side, but it's that sense of like, I've gotten to this place because I've gotten really good at the craft of my job. I've gone mm -hmm. from building skills mm -hmm. to building craft. And yes. I, I, I know how to use my tools. I know how to make things out of them. Don't tell me how to do this differently. Yeah. And the response to that is always where I show up and say, you are an expert. You are totally an expert and you have an unbelievable tool belt. What I am asking you to do is to show up and deploy them in a slightly different manner, yeah. but I am not going to tell you how to code. I'm not going to tell you how to be a great UX designer. I'm not going to tell you how to be, you know, an unbelievable, uh, you know, investment manager or a leader of investment managers. None of that is on the table. You do you. What I want to show you is show up with those tools and I want to help you figure out how to deploy them to make something even better. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're talking a lot about product management, product leadership. And yep. when I talk to folks that are in this space a lot or coaching product leaders, I often wonder how much of the advice that's given to product leaders is just good management advice versus advice that is specific to the unique job of 
leading a digital product in a highly complex environment. So can you talk a little bit about what is the difference between just good management advice versus the distinct skills? Yeah. And to be honest with you, my secret sauce is that if I would take a, a human being with strong human being skills <laughs> any day of the week and twice on Sunday, because that's what's really necessary to be successful in product management. So you know what it is? It's caring about people, caring about your users, caring about your colleagues, caring about the business, right? Like having some empathy, not just solely focused on the customer, but empathy for how your work impacts other people's work, having empathy for, you know, the tough decisions that have to be made at every level of the organization. Empathy, it's a pretty good human being skill, right? Yeah, yeah, I would yeah, also yeah. argue we're probably pretty short on that in lots of areas of life right now. Okay, so, so empathy, communication. Can you paint a picture? Can you tell a story about what is happening in a particular part of your business or in your user's world or in your customer's lives? Can you tell a story in a way that is descriptive and informative and compelling? Awesome, right? I do think that there's a certain amount of the ability to break down work, right? Or break down concepts, uh, complex concepts into meaningful chunks of work. Like, okay, I get that we're trying to go after this big picture. I always talk about this one a little bit in terms of balance points, right? You cannot be all vision and be a a great product manager because you can spin a yarn all day long, (laughs) you know, about what a great world you're trying to create. But if you can't actually break that down into a meaningful sort of meaningful pieces of work that a team can dig into and bring to reality, then you're not getting the job done. So, so I do think that these are, they're good human skills and they're good and they're good business skills. We, the consultants of the world, right? The product coaches of the world, the agile coaches of the world, can teach you the artifacts and the cadences and the tools and the techniques, the specific things. None of those are insurmountable to learn. You don't have to go to school for eight years. This is not brain surgery. It is just applying those human skills, those good business skills in um, specific context. And most people I know who come in, you know, I actually am, I'm coaching a really great uh, product leader right now who had, has about, 15 or 18 years in finance, um, in her company, surprisingly. So this is, this is a new one for me. Someone came out of the finance organization and had worked in multiple business units and actually got picked to be the first and only leader of product inside her company and coalescing all of that. And you know, what's great. She understands how the business works. She understands how the money flows and I can teach her how to stand up a product team, how to create a product taxonomy, why you need product vision, why you need to think about some of these like trappings of product. But she's got the goods because she understands the business and she understands, you know, it's a, it's retail business. So she understands how the money flows. She's been, been around the block. She's worked on lots of different initiatives and projects and teams over her 15 years at this company. And she's got all of those human skills, right? Yeah. That she's really, and she's really committed to the customer. Those are all great things that like I couldn't teach, right? As a coach or a consultant. Yeah. 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 So she's got her, she's bringing her own toolbox and totally. you, know, you know, the, the, the basic skills of a business of a product leader or something that can be taught. That's great. Totally. So um, I'm, I want to be careful of your time. I know you got 
a busy schedule. So I just have no two, two quick wrap up questions that sure. I'm asking consistently to see where the patterns are. So okay. when you think about your favorite non-work book or podcast, that is not mm-hmm. Brene Brown. Um, I, I'm not allowed to say Brene. I got it. <laughs> so, so, side note. I actually, I want to start a, uh, Brene Brown study group for men, like a weekly, Ooh. a weekly yeah. study group where we're getting together to discuss what we're learning, but that's a whole separate podcast. So okay. uh, w- what is your favorite non-work book or podcast? <laughs> so I'm a podcast junkie. I mean, I just, I love podcasts. I like being yeah. on them, but I really like listening to them. Um, and so I'm also really big into politics. I think if I were to start over again and do something different, I might be a, a journalist, honestly. I really, really love um, uh, analysis and, and thinking about what's happening in our world. And so Slate Politics, I've been listening to the Slate Politics podcast since its very first one. And I can still remember reading slate and then saying, we're going to try this thing called podcasting. And, and like, I remember downloading it onto my not very smartphone and like to listen to it. And I, and I don't yeah. think it was a zoom, but like, it was pretty close to whatever that was. Right. Like I downloaded it. So I've been listening to it for like 15 or 20 years. Um, so the slate politics podcast is my hands down favorite. I've listened to every episode, you know, since its beginning. Um, the other one that I really like is slate money. I am not, I, I, I famously skipped out of all econ classes when I was in college because I just could not figure out how to get interested in that. And I, I like sought exceptions, but the Slate Money um, podcast, so both from Slate are, is really great. And actually Felix Salmon is, uh, I think he's with Axios now, but he's a very compelling, he can break down really complex ideas to like super, super understandable and entertaining. Like I'm constantly entertained on that to really think about the role of macro and microeconomics and politics and everything else like that. So I love that. Yeah. He's uniquely skilled at that. Yeah. So um, what is the kindest thing someone has done for you? So, so it's so funny when you ask this, I was like, I feel like people are just kind to me all the time. And how lucky am I? Right. Like that was, that was my first reaction. So I will, I'm going to give you two. So one is that I have a friend who randomly just sends me like raw, raw postcards. Um, and I have them, you can't see in my screen, but like right off to the side and the, the, the last one says, you're the best. We asked around and everybody says it's true. And like, she just sends me random <laughs> postcards and somehow she knows the days that they need to arrive and they magically arrive in my inbox on the day. So like that kind of kindness is really amazing, but I, I have to tell you, so we're recording this just before the holidays. Um, and I can tell you the story because my son does not listen to my podcast because he's 10 years old, but he wanted the home alone Lego set more than anything. Okay. So this is a gigantic Lego set. And I really debated on whether or not we needed to buy this size of a gift for our 10 year old, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, is this wise? And while I was debating the home alone Lego set sold out okay. and then we decided that we were going to do it. And cause he kept saying, mom, I really, mom, I really need it. So couldn't find it. I was ready to like drive four hours out of state for it. And on a last ditch effort, I posted on Facebook, (laughs) any chance everyone, anyone has just like an extra one laying around, right. Or knows of someone who's like hoarding them or something like that, that I could buy from them. 
And a woman that I went to high school with and was like distantly connected to on Facebook. I mean, we're friends, but like, I haven't talked to her in probably 20 years. Said, I've got one. Come over to South Minneapolis tonight and pick it up. I was like, what are you talking about? You have one. Well, she's a big, they're a big Lego family and she's a big Lego nerd. And she said, well, I bought one for myself. I don't need it in December. I can buy it when it restocks in January, come get it. And I said, well, what can I give you? And she's like, well, I paid $270 and 83 cents. So that's what I would like, <laughs> like not one cent of markup, you know, not anything. I just, I can't believe I just admitted that I spent that much on my child for Christmas, but there it is. So I'm very excited that on Christmas morning, he is going to open that and he's going to lose his freaking mind and it's going to be worth it. But also just the kindness of, yeah, I'll get one later. It's totally fine. Come take yeah. mine. It's more important to you. That was a really kind and people even commented to me, I read that on your Facebook and it warmed my heart. And so like the kindness was not just to me, it was like witnessed by others, which made them feel good. It was just really lovely. So that I'm going to put that one in the kindness, kindness category. All right. Well, I think that's a great example and a great way to end. Thank um, you. Well, I hope you have a really peaceful and quiet close to the year. Thank uh, you. You and, too. And you come back as strong or stronger in 2022. Wonderful. Same to you, Jim. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Business Drivers presented by Farron. Find us at hellofarron.com to learn more about the work we do, sign up for our newsletter, and find articles and resources to help you grow as a leader. Or find us on Twitter at hellofarron or on LinkedIn. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. We'd love to reach more people with the work that we're doing. And if you have ideas or advice or feedback or complaints, please reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email at bizdrivers at hellofarron.com. That's B-I-Z-D-R-I-V-E-R-S at hellofarron.com. Until next time, this is Jim Keen saying thanks.